0: Let's pray. In prayer, I launch far out into the eternal world, and on that broad ocean, my soul triumphs over all evils on the shores of mortality. Time, with its gay amusements and cruel disappointments, never appears so inconsiderate as when I pray. In prayer, I see myself as nothing, I find my heart going after thee with intensity. And long with vehement thirst to live to thee. Blessed be the strong gales of the Spirit that speed me on my way to the new Jerusalem. In prayer all things here below vanish, and nothing seems important but holiness of heart and the salvation of others. In prayer all my worldly cares, fears, and anxieties disappear, and are of as little significance as a puff of wind. In prayer, my soul inwardly exults with lively thoughts of what you're doing for your church. And I long that you should get yourself a great name from sinners returning to Zion. In prayer, I am lifted above the frowns and flatteries of life and taste heavenly joys. Entering into the eternal world, I can give myself to you with all my heart and be yours forever. In prayer, I can place all my concerns in your hands and be entirely at your disposal. Having no will or interest of my own. In prayer, I can intercede for my friends, for ministers, sinners, the church, thy kingdom to come, with greatest freedom, ardent hopes as a son to his father, as a lover to the beloved. Help me to be all prayer and never cease praying. Lord, I'm thankful for the prayers of the saints throughout the years that have gone up and been heard by you. I'm thankful for your response every time. Lord, we humbly come before you this morning asking that you would guide us, that you would do a work in our hearts and minds by the Spirit that would otherwise not happen. It's not enough to show up fairly prepared. It's not enough... To preach passionately and clearly. Uh, We desperately need the work of the Holy Spirit this morning. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We humble ourselves before you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter 4 7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Be sober minded and self controlled for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I'm going to be preaching for the next two weeks on sovereignty and prayer. Next week, we're going to consider the second half of the verse, the self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. We'll consider the persistent widow and, and what was actually happening when she was praying. But this week, we're going to focus largely on what happens to us when we pray. I feel like when I'm getting up here to say I'm going to preach on praying, that it's like saying, okay, turn to John 3.16. I feel like a room full of believers are going to say, I've heard that, I get that. But I'm hoping that the Lord takes us deeper this morning. This week we're focusing largely on what happens to us. I feel that this is the more underdeveloped reality for many of us, on what is happening to us when we pray to our Lord. As I preach on God's sovereignty in prayer, I want you guys to know very humbly that I will be doing so out of conviction, not a rival. C.J. Mahaney uh, wrote a book on uh, humility. That's a hard book to write on, right? Because as the author, it's like, I'm going to write a book on humility. And, uh, And he wrote this book on humility. And at the beginning of the book, he wrote, I am a proud man pursuing humility by the grace of God. And this morning, I am in larger part a prayerless man. Pursuing prayerfulness by the grace of God. I know that even as a pastor, the prayers I have are just not nearly what they could be. And I've learned that more in these previous weeks, which I'll explain. I have battled and am battling against a life of prayer that seems stale at times. Has anyone ever battled against that? It seems stale at many times, while at other times it seems rich. Sometimes there's really great clarity, but at other times... There seems to be little that makes any sense at all. Oftentimes in my prayer, I can feel this otherworldly and divine power, while at other times I feel this overwhelming sense of futility and purposelessness, like why am I even offering this up? What's the point? For Christmas, I was given a book that I read from in the opening prayer. We don't just use others' prayers as our own, but we can utilize others' prayers as a catalyst for our own prayer. And this book is called Valley of Vision. It's a book of Puritan prayers and devotionals. As I read one prayer after another, I began to be broken of this really stark reality that I do not pray like these guys. It's not a huge book. It's this little bitty book, but it's like gunpowder. It's just potent. And I'm reading through it, and I'm like, I I mean, these guys are really intense, really urgent. They seem to be very... Excited about their prayers, and I just realized this stark reality that I don't pray like them. And then in John 17, I witnessed Jesus, Jesus, praying with urgency and detail and fervency, this passionate intensity in his prayers. And it was sort of hard for me to make sense of. Why such diligence in prayer when you know more about God than anyone else? That was what I thought when we were reading John 17. Why such pleading when you're not even a sinner? Why such seriousness in praying for those who are yours when you know their ultimate fate and purpose? Why pray that none of yours would be lost if you knew that none of yours would be lost? I began to see this disconnect in my prayers and my thoughts on prayer that drew me into a sort of an investigation on why so many seem to have a very similar struggle. Here at Crosspoint, we believe in a sovereign God. There's no one above him. There's no one who is giving counsel to our God. There is no one who is changing his mind. There is no one who is greater. He is altogether different as the creator of all things created. That's who our God is. He is seated and will never and can never be dethroned. He is not waiting to see what we will do or how we will respond to decide upon his movement and what he's going to do. He moves according to the wisdom of his sovereign will. He accomplishes all of his purposes. These are sweet realities for God's children that we have a sovereign father. But for many of us, sitting here, because of our sin, our perspective on these realities has an adverse effect your perspective on these realities might have an adverse effect. Reformed thinkers have a tendency to approach evangelism and prayer in a similar way. In June, I'll preach two weeks on evangelism and God's sovereignty. For this week and next, we're going to focus on prayer. So this thinking that I'm calling into question this morning goes something like this. If God is going to do what God is going to do, what is the point in prayer? If God is going to save who God's going to save, what's the point in evangelism? Well, first, just to be blunt, they're commanded. So if your sovereign God says go, you go. But we'll dig a little deeper. I won't just end there. He commands it. Go pray. Amen. If God's going to save, if God's going to save, what's the point in evangelism? What's the point in prayer if he's going to do what he does? What's the point in pleading with God in prayer? Pleading. Why would one spend hours on their face when there's so many more practical things to do with our time? After all, if it's supposed to happen, it's going to happen, regardless of my prayer and my efforts, right? What I want us to consider this morning is that the realities of God's unshakable sovereignty are meant by God to be a catalyst for prayer. They're not supposed to drive us to cease praying. Over the last few weeks, we've spent a majority of our time looking at the life of Peter, who wrote the text that we're in this morning. Peter was an apostle of Christ who experienced a first hand account of God's sovereign will. He got to see it played out right before his very eyes. He received the seemingly counterintuitive blessing of seeing how horrible his sin was and how desperately he needed the work that Christ was going to accomplish on the cross. Peter learned that there was nothing that he could do or could not do that would keep God from accomplishing his purposes in Christ. At first, his attitude was a bit different, wasn't it? Peter's attitude was one that seemed as though Christ's kingdom would be furthered by Peter's fortitude and by Peter's strength. And by Peter's boldness, but Peter turned out to be the Gethsemane snoozer, where God says, "Y'all stay awake, be on guard." And he turns around, and Peter, Mr. Bold, is snoozing, and, and you can almost see him as he wakes, and he's like, "Oh," and he's rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. You can almost just see him looking at God like a goober, like, "Oh, my bad, I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm bold. I promise. I was just sleeping." Peter's the overzealous ear chopper offer. Malchus comes in with another, a bunch of other people to take Jesus into custody. And Peter, who's going to forward God's kingdom with all that he has, takes out his sword and just chops his ear off. I mean, it could have been a lot worse, but he chops his ear off. It's odd. And Jesus looks at him. No, Peter. Malchus is like, what did you do that for? And Jesus picks up Malchus' ear, smacks it on the side of his head. I bet he wiggled it or something. And it's back on his head. And you can just picture Peter like with a sword, kind of wanting to hide it behind his back. My bad. My bad. See, what Peter found out that it was actually in spite of his efforts and in spite of the fact that he denied his Lord that the kingdom of God was forwarded. In my thinking, if anyone would have a futile perspective on prayer, it would be Peter, right? You could almost hear him saying, no matter what I do, God's going to do his will. No matter what I do, God's going to accomplish what God's going to accomplish. What's the point in making an effort? I try my best. I screw it up. God still gets, gets done what he's going to get done. What's the point? And so you would think that Peter, of all people, would say, what's the point in praying? But that's not what happened with Peter. The newfound realities of his sovereign and unshakable Lord became a catalyst for prayer. Prayer. Last week, Ben mentioned that we are to run to Christ's righteousness daily, just like Peter. We are broke. We do not have some treasury of money set aside with which we can purchase our own righteousness, in which we can purchase our own salvation. We run to Christ's righteousness. We're awaiting our salvation. We need that charcoal fire on the seashore where we're receiving provision from a risen Lord. I would offer this week, this morning... That this running to Christ's righteousness daily will happen largely through prayer. 1 Peter 4.7 says, The end of all things is at hand. Be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter realized that with the coming of Christ, with Christ dying on the cross, and being resurrected from the dead, and ascending back into heaven, that he, Peter, lived in a new era specifically an era where the end of all things is at hand. And that's the era that you live in, and it affects your prayers. The already and the not yet. See, what Peter experienced was this pivot point in history where this long-awaited prophesied Messiah has arrived, and he's right before his very eyes. For years they've awaited his arrival. The forefathers of Israel eagerly anticipated it, and the prophets prophesied it. And now the apostles were witnessing it. It's what we call the beginning of the end. It was a game changer for them. The Messiah is here and he's speaking. Let's listen. Let's consider what he's saying. And it remains a game changer for us. This is very real. We live in the same time. Turn to Matthew 24. Considering our Messiah and how he explains things. Now, Matthew 24 We should be able to picture ourselves in this scenario pretty easily. Verses like this that I'm about to share are meant to sober us up. Being sober minded for the sake of your prayers. If we were with Jesus at the time, we would be asking the same kind of questions that his disciples were asking. What I mean is that when the Messiah comes to earth, you begin to ask questions like, what's next? What about this? what about that? When is this going to happen? How's that going to, how's this age going to end? So Jesus is explaining what are called the signs of the close of the age. Now look at verse 3 in Matthew 24 through 8. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us When will these things be? When will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So though he is there, they're still anticipating something more is going to happen. When's the sign of your coming and the close of this age? Because you're the Messiah and you're going to redeem this earth, right? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And tell me if this sounds familiar to you. And you will hear of wars. And rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. So Jesus is saying, I'm already here, but the end is not yet. That's what I mean when I'm talking about the already and the not yet. Tell me if this sounds familiar. For nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. are you kidding me? Is that real enough for you? Wars, famines and earthquakes. That's a fairly common occurrence for us. Such cataclysmic, cataclysmic events will be a regular part of this age until the return of Jesus to redeem all of creation. So that tells me that Fox News, CNN, for those who don't have, cable channels, four, five, eight and 11 are all spending the majority of the day reporting on the return of Jesus. That's what that means. That's the time that we live in. So what does this have to do with my prayer life? If you lose sight of the time that you live in, namely a time where the end of all things is at hand, you'll see no purpose in prayer. If you just think, Things are going to keep going like they've always done. You'll not see a great purpose in prayer. But belief in God's sovereignty causes active obedience. He does command us to pray. He doesn't suggest it. Belief in God's sovereignty causes active obedience, not passive observation. Belief in God's sovereignty does not foster futility. It explodes it. It does not foster this thing that says, why should I pray if God's bigger than me? He knows more than I do. Why does he need to know what I think? The fact that our sovereign God commands us to pray fosters this resilience, this confidence that we're going to talk about in a minute, but it, it explodes futility. It explodes the sense that there's no purpose in it. Jesus is undoubtedly coming back. So pray to that end. Come, Lord Jesus, come. The end of things here means the beginning of eternity with our God. So I'm going to ask a question to purposefully stir your thoughts. The question that I'm asking is this, what do you anticipate more than this? Jesus is coming back, like like it's going to happen with all certainty. We're at the beginning of the end here. We're sometime in the middle of when Jesus came back in the close of the age. We're in that time that Jesus just described. And I would ask you, what do you spend the majority of your time anticipating more than that? It might be a raise. You might be anticipating good health or a promotion. You might be anticipating just being debt free. You might be anticipating retirement. Some of you might be anticipating marriage more than you anticipate the return of Christ. You might anticipate children. It's not bad things, but if you get them out of order, your prayers are all messed up. Maybe it's just the thought of a life that doesn't hurt so much. What are you anticipating more than the return of your Lord? Because if we understand that the end of all things is at hand, we will eagerly anticipate the return of our Lord rightly, and it will drive us to prayer. If we're prayerless, it might be because we're anticipating the wrong things in the wrong order. We are awaiting salvation. We're awaiting the return of our Lord. As I was explaining Matthew 2, 24 and talking with Lindsay about it, she said, oh, that reminds me of Habakkuk. I was like, oh, me too. (laughs) It's pretty awesome. I didn't know I wanted a wife who could say, that reminds me of Habakkuk. When she did, I was like, that's pretty hot. It's awesome. (laughs) Um, So turn to Habakkuk. Habakkuk. You've all been there this week, I'm sure. Right after Nahum, right before Zephaniah. Those are familiar, I'm sure. It's page 785 in my ESV Bible. Use the table of contents if you need to. It's an obscure book to many. It's shorter. Habakkuk. As Lindsay shared, that this remind, reminds her of Habakkuk, she, she had no idea, I don't think, about how this whole book. I almost want to read the whole thing out loud, but I won't. You probably will in your small groups, though. But I want you to see what's happening here. Look at verses one through five. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw, and this is what, what's called Habakkuk's complaint. He's going to the Lord in prayer, and he's not so reverent, really. He says this: "Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and will you not hear?" Now, before we think, oh, that is very irreverent, do you ever like throw your hands up and give God the, "Yeah, I'm praying. What are you going to do? Are you going to do anything? Don't you see how horrible the circumstance is? Listen to what He says. How long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Those are bold words to bring before your Lord. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. It's like, what are you doing, Lord? And Look what the Lord says. This is the Lord's answer to Habakkuk's not-so-reverent prayer. Prayer, that's good, but he probably could have been a little more reverent. The Lord says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. This really does a wonderful job of illustrating how we sometimes have this very narrow view of our circumstances that needs to be greatly widened. This is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. This is not good. Where are you, Lord? And the Lord says, if I told you all that I was doing in your day, you wouldn't even be able to comprehend it. Don't forget that I'm God. And that's such a merciful response. I mean, when Habakkuk goes before the Lord and says, why do you look idle? You're being idle, Lord. He could have been, oh, idle? How about, how's how's that? But he doesn't. He's so incredibly merciful in his response. We see only the hard issues at hand, and rightly we cry out to God. Habakkuk's plea is very similar to many of ours. Oh, when will you come and redeem your people, O Lord? So first, Habakkuk prays. Then God answers the prayer. And it's funny because as you keep reading, God answers this prayer and says, I'm doing more than you realize. And then Habakkuk's like, but come on. Why would you do that? Your people are suffering if that's what you're doing. Come on. And he still kind of whines a little bit. And the Lord responds again and reveals more of what he's doing. And this pattern continues throughout this short book. Habakkuk prays, offers up a concern, even a complaint. And his merciful God does what? He provides answers and insight the same way he does when we pray. Look what happens at the end of Habakkuk. Turn to the end. Habakkuk 3:16. After they go through this and the Lord reveals things to them in prayer, look what happens to Habakkuk. Verse 16. He's responding to what the Lord has said, and he said, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold. There be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my highly places. My high places. Seriously? All that in a couple prayers? This guy goes from being... Lord, you're idle. My life's horrible. People are being mean to us. I don't get it. And he's really hurt. And then he's, you make my feet like a deer? Just in prayer, that's what happened? Even if there's no food in the cupboard, I rejoice in you. Though the herds be cut off, I rejoice in you. The field's producing nothing. I rejoice in you greatly. That's what happened to Habakkuk in his prayer. Through prayer, Habakkuk's demeanor and approach was changed from concern, misunderstanding, and anxiety to one who is able to rejoice and take joy in God no matter the circumstance in prayer. This all sounds very similar to Paul's explanation in Philippians. Turn over to Philippians 4.4. It's very, very similar. Philippians 4.4, 4. sounds like Habakkuk, same Lord, same kind of time. Rejoice in the Lord always, again I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. When I say the Lord is at hand here, the end of all things is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That means that if you are filled with anxiety in a circumstance, exactly like Habakkuk, rather than being filled with anxiety, our Lord in his breathed out word says, do not be anxious But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to me. Think about that. The sovereign God says, let your request be made known to me. And then he says, I'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'll give you a peace that exceeds understanding. What Jesus is saying is, understanding is not what's most important. Just like it was with Habakkuk but I'll give you a peace that's greater than understanding. If you think the thing that's most important is that you know how everything will work out all the time, at least a week ahead of time, God says, no, 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 no. I give you my peace that exceeds is is more important than understanding. Understanding is important, but I'll give you a peace when there's not that understanding. Quite merciful. So we need to steer away from the thinking that we are somehow changing God when we're praying. That's a thinking that many of us have. I'm going to go change God. If this is his idea of the way it should be, I'm going to go do some praying. Change him. By the way, that's not what the persistent widow did. We'll talk about that more next week. If some of y'all are thinking, well, she was persistent. Persistence is good, but you don't change God. See, God's not waiting to hear from us on how he's going to respond When the next war erupts. Or what he will do when the next earthquake hits. See, prayer is the sign of a needy person, not a person who has it all together and and then goes to God with the answers. To many of us, prayer would make a lot more sense if we were actually accomplishing something. Wouldn't it? If I was actually accomplishing something when I prayed, I would do it more. If I could pray my loved one into heaven then I would pray without ceasing. If I could pray the cancer away, then I would be diligent about it. If I could pray safety for my children, then I would do so earnestly. But the reality is that my loved ones will only be saved and the cancer will only go away and my children will only be safe if the Lord has already decided that it be so. So what am I really accomplishing in all of this prayer? I think many of us probably think like that. I want to gently offer that that way of thinking, in that thinking, we're losing sight of what God is accomplishing in us, in the very prayer that He ordains. Why does God tell me to pray for the suffering when He has ordained their suffering? Why does God tell me to pray for kings and all who are in high positions when Jesus already said that war and famine will be a certain reality in the last days? Why would I pray for Japan when Jesus was the one who said that the earthquake was a sign of his coming? One reason is that you need to know that your God hears you. That does something in you. Turn to 1 John 5.14. 1 John 5.14. As you're turning there, remember that our context is the end of all things is at hand. It was the context for Habakkuk as he was awaiting the arrival of Christ the first time and the salvation of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand was the context for Peter, and it was also the context for John who wrote the verse we're about to read. 1 John 5.14, verse 14 says this, And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Do you care about that at all? Being heard for the psalmist was a big deal. If you ever read through the Psalms, you have heard our cry. You have heard our plea. You have heard our prayer. You have heard our complaint. You have heard the weeping. You have heard our rejoicing. They care a lot about being heard by the Lord. Why does it matter that God hears us? Why does, it care? Why does God care to hear from us? Sadly, I think many of us don't believe this. I think many sitting in this room right now don't believe it or they struggle with believing it. We don't care to be heard by someone who doesn't care to hear from us, right? What that means is that I don't want to waste my breath talking to someone who cares little about what I have to say. And for many of us, we feel this way about God. I don't believe that he cares about hearing from me. So why would I go to him in prayer? And what we're seeing in 1 John 5, 14 is that there is a confidence that happens in us when we go to God in prayer and are reminded that He actually hears us. We're reminded that He hears us when we go to Him in prayer. This is the confidence which we have before Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. There's an if there. What that means is If you ask nothing in prayer, you'll not find that confidence. But God offers it in prayer. If you're thinking, that's fairly obscure, explain it more. I can't. I would would encourage you to go pray. Do you have that confidence? Turn to Isaiah 64, verse 7. I want us to hear from the prophets those who walked before Christ. I want us to hear from those who walked with Christ. I want us to hear from those who walked after Christ. Isaiah, as you turn there, Isaiah 64, um, I'm going to read an excerpt from the back of my Bible. Your Bible has some some really helpful things. If you have a study Bible or even just not a study Bible, there's things in the back. And a lot of times when I'm reading about the prophets and what the prophets were saying. It's really helpful for me to go and be reminded of the time that they were speaking and the time that they were writing. And so I'm going to read this little excerpt from the back here on the time that Isaiah was prophesying. And I want you all to tell me if it sounds familiar at all. I just read through this last night and I was like, wow, that's pretty direct. Isaiah lived during the decline of Israel in the shadow of Assyria. He spoke the word of God to a people who were deaf and blind. Who refused to listen to his warnings of looming disaster? He's coming back. No one's listening. They're closing their eyes to it, they're closing their ears to it. He warned that the sin of the people of Judah would bring God's judgment. Repent, follow Jesus. Yet he also declared that God is sovereign (laughs) and would use Cyrus the Persian to return them from exile. It's like Habakkuk. He's always doing more than we realize. The book speaks of a servant, a man of sorrows, who would be wounded for our transgressions, accomplishing God's purpose of salvation. The final chapters give a beautiful description of a new creation in which God will rule as king. That's what we're waiting on, in case you're wondering. Judging the wicked and establishing eternal peace. That's our backdrop. Look at Isaiah 64, verse 7. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face and made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. The prophet is saying, Lord, there's no one who will rouse himself, who will move himself from slumber, who will move himself from being inactive to laying hold of you in prayer. Rather than wallowing in your sin and perpetuating a cycle of life that has no purpose because you think we might be a bunch of robots, God would rather you rouse yourself and take hold of him in prayer. I personally have a hard time understanding this verse because there's two ways of looking at the verse and my initial instinct is to look at it the wrong way. The two ways are the wrong way and the right way. I have a problem with the wrong way. Namely, my hard time comes from I read this and I think to myself, I don't lay hold of my God. No one lays hold of my God. He's sovereign. He only lays hold of us. I don't understand this. It's hard to make sense of because it's not as though my prayer is a lasso and God is a wild bull and somehow if I can lay hold of him, I can use his power to my benefit. That's the way I used to think before I learned what the word sovereign meant. As a child, much of my prayer was, can I get God to do what I want him to do? But we don't continue praying like that. Harnessing God's power for whatever benefit you prefer, that's not what we're doing when we pray. Ben offered up an illustration of this verse, this laying hold of our Lord that it's more like a locomotive moving forward according to the sovereign will of the track. You ever seen someone chasing a train on a movie? Picture that. And in our prayers, we earnestly run after our Lord so as to lay hold of the locomotive so we can jump on board and move in accordance. It's worth every effort we have. Because without prayer, we're standing and we're just watching this train go by. It's going to go where it's going to go. I can't change that. And rather than laying hold of it, we stand sluggish and spiritually lazy as we watch it become this dot on the horizon only to disappear quickly. What's amazing here is that Habakkuk did the very thing that Isaiah prophesied. He roused himself and he took hold of the Lord in prayer. And I would offer that many of us need to do the exact same thing. Prayer has always been and will always be more about the change that happens in us, not God. That's a really important point this morning. What pleases God is not our work for Him, but our need of Him. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working, but not because of the person who's praying, but because of the power of the one to whom they're praying to. Because of the power of the one who hears their prayers. Are our prayers lacking? I'm asking this soberly. Are our prayers lacking because we have little expectation of our God? He can do what he wants, whether I want it or not. Is your expectation of him according to your desire or for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Just because you can't decide who will be saved does not mean that God will not save anybody. Just because you can't decide who will be healed does not mean that God will not heal anybody. That thinking is futile. Just because you can't decide who will be safe or who will brave the storm does not mean that God is not a strong refuge and a shelter to many. He is the good shepherd. In Isaiah 40, there's this picture of the young Sheep, the lambs, they're moving along and they can't quite, and he's the good shepherd who carries the young ones in his arms because he's so full of tender care and mercy. He's measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heavens with a span. The nations are like a drop from a bucket in comparison. Our sovereign Lord brings out every star, every night, and according to the word, he has names for all of them. And he never loses one of them. The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. To the hungry, he offers the bread of life. To the thirsty, he offers to drink from the fountain of living water. The end is near. Please don't dismiss pastors when you hear them say that. The end is near. Our hardest days are likely before us. Are you encouraged? Our hardest days are likely before us. Wars, famines, and earthquakes will usher in the coming of the Lord. But this God of great power urges you not to be anxious. This God who needs nothing from us lovingly and gently says, come to me, you who are weary. That should do something to you. This God of great power says, don't be anxious. Come to me, you who are sinners. Let your requests be made known. I'm listening. I know your deepest needs before you voice them, but I still want you to voice them. I mean, hear God saying, I want to hear from you. When I'm explaining to my children why we pray, one of the most simple things I explain is because evidently the Lord enjoys hearing from his children. He, he desires to hear from his children. You can hear the Lord saying, you can't completely understand me yet, much like Habakkuk couldn't. But I'll give you a peace that's greater than understanding. I know what you've done and I know what you're going to do. I know your sins. I know how you're going to sin. And you need what I have to offer. And I offer it to you in my son. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. You don't just end the prayer with amen. You say in Jesus' name. Hear the Lord saying, pray to me. I give you access to my ear in the name of my son. Taste and see that I am good. Is there a great reason for us to pray? Absolutely. The end of all things is at hand. In the coming days... There's so much more that we'll need from our Lord. To know that the Lord hears us is also to know that that we can be heard by the Lord and that that we need to hear what he has to say as well. Does that make sense? Like he doesn't just hear and be like, oh, that was neat. He responds the same way he did with, with Habakkuk. It's been said that in prayer, God gets the glory and we get joy. How amazing is that? He is the overflowing fountain and we are satisfied with living water. He is infinitely rich, and we are happy heirs. Knowing that we are in the last days should not cause us to be hopeless, to feel as though there is no purpose, and to sense futility in our prayers. Our God is a God of hope. He offers hope. But how has it been offered with everyone we've considered this morning? Hope was offered to Habakkuk in prayer. Hope was offered to Isaiah in prayer. Hope was offered to all of Israel in prayer. Hope was offered to Peter in prayer. Hope was offered to John in prayer. So I would conclude that prayerlessness is hopelessness. Prayerlessness is hopelessness. For what other way will we hear from the only one in whom true hope is found? After Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you remember the first thing he did when he came in? He cleansed the temple. He gets off the donkey's colt, and he goes to cleanse the temple. He shows up where people should be praying. And I wonder if it would be very different if he just showed up at our homes. He shows up where people should be praying, and instead, it is completely worldly. The landscape has changed to such a degree that Jesus seems to be the one out of place in his own house. And as he drives out the money changers and he turns over the tables, he says, It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. This theme throughout the Bible, we become so busy that I don't have time to pray. i got time to do other stuff to pray. i got some things to do. Or I'll give it three minutes and that's it. There's this theme throughout the Bible where the prophets were calling God's people to prayer. The disciples were calling God's people to prayer. Peter called God's people to prayer. John called God's people to prayer. Paul Called God's people to prayer. Every church that was established was first called to prayer. And Jesus, in case we missed all of that, calls us to prayer. He teaches us how to pray. Jesus is here calling his people to prayer because to do so is to turn us Godward and to keep us Godward. Because we can be aimed in so many other directions. It's very, very easy. That's a big reason that I personally struggle in my prayers. But Jesus calls us to prayer because it turns us Godward and it keeps us Godward. This is the, the, uh, the appropriate posture of God's people because we're eagerly anticipating his return. If I'm just eagerly anticipating all these otherworldly things, I'm going to be looking to those things that I anticipate. But if above and beyond all of those other things we are anticipating the return of our Lord, we're anticipating our salvation, then we will be Godward. We will have our eyes up. The word says, do not be consumed with the things around us, with worldly cares, but set your minds and your eyes on the things above. That happens in prayer. In preparation of this sermon, I'm just really burdened that we would be a praying people. I think we would see so much more. I think we would have clarity where we're lacking it. I think we would have passion where we're dull. I think we would have strength where we're very weak. But a sermon on prayer doesn't accomplish it. Praying accomplishes it. So let's pray to that end. Lord, we humble ourselves before you. I confess, Lord, that I'm brokenhearted, that as I read about generation after generation after generation that is called to prayer and seems to be largely in prayer, that I look at our generation and we're very prayerless. I can be consumed with a thousand other things any given day. Lord, please, by the work of your Spirit, help us to not be distracted From eternal matters. The end of all things is at hand. Somehow, by the work of your spirit, let that reality set into us. Because we have a a misconceived, skewed perception of reality. If we don't realize the end of all things is at hand. If we're working in our work and we're hanging out and just... Just living life in a bland manner that is prayerless. We don't think that the end of all things is at hand. So our reality is not real at all. But with your words this morning, you shape reality for us the way it really is. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Help us not to be like those in the time of Isaiah that were closing their eyes to this truth and that were closing their ears to this truth. Help us to be fervent in prayer. Intensely passionate in prayer. Truthful in prayer. I'm thankful for the reminder this morning that you gave me in a devotional that sometimes the best thing we can do is to pray contrary to our own hearts. Because our hearts will lie to us and deceive us. But you don't ever lie to us. You're not a deceiver. Lord, I want for this body to have that confidence that when we draw near to you in prayer, when we ask, you hear. Ultimately, we pray like Jesus as we humbly let our request be made known, because you allow it and you call for it, just like Jesus prayed in the next breath, but let your will be done, Lord. Our prayer is that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even that simple prayer, if we prayed it in detail, would be a game changer for us. Lord, we love you and we humble ourselves before you. We pray
1: these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take a few minutes in preparation for the supper. We'll take in a few minutes. I would ask your permission to speak freely today. But I'm compelled to speak freely as an elder in this body, having heard another elder, deliver the truth of God's Word. I'm troubled, and I've been troubled for some time, and I want you to know it starts with my own heart. I'm troubled within myself, and I'm troubled for this body. And the truth of God's Word and what we just heard from His Word, His truth, is our hope In John 17, when we heard the prayer, from the maker of heaven and earth, the Son, to the maker of heaven and earth, the Father, and he said, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. This thing that's ringing in my head and has from this time is our oneness. Our oneness as a body. Our ability to be one and real and share. And next, as we, we're hearing of Peter and him being out front and wanting to do this work for Christ even to whack off an ear. I've got your back, Jesus. And Jesus says, put your sword up. Am I not to drink this cup? When we drink this cup and we eat this bread in a moment, I want us to know what we're doing, what we're to be reminded of. The other thing that rings in my head comes from God's word in 1 Timothy 6, and it says, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. And if I speak freely, guys, in my own life, in my own conversations, in my conversations with you, we're not a very content people. I don't know what Scott was reading from when he shared the prayer when we started. Frowns and flatteries. Scott, I don't know where that came from. Man, How many of my conversations every day is about frowns and flatteries? Are we real? Now, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Are you content with food and clothing? Am I content with just food and clothing? What is my pursuit? But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Eternal life, is that way out there? Is it the end of this flesh? Do you live as if you have eternal life? I made a note to myself. <laughs> so in Christ we are called to eternal life. Are you clinging to this life? To safety, to comfort, to convenience, to happiness? We're called to godliness. Not some form of it, not some other god, but the god of this Bible. Yahweh, Yahwehness, With contentment. When we talk about a finished work of Christ, that we worship and glory in that when we take this supper, we're reminded of that finished work. Are we rejoicing in him? Scott already shared Philippians 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Later in that chapter, it says, this is Paul saying, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. we got to learn contentment. I'm not sitting here this morning and saying, you have to be content. I'm saying, let's move in that direction. I need to be going there. I need to learn. He says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. I know what it's like not to have things. I don't know what it's like to have things. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We take that verse and we say, with Christ, I can do anything, anything I want. You know what that verse says? I can do. That do is prevail. I can prevail in all manner of things through Christ who strengthens me. How do I prevail? Because it doesn't matter about my circumstance, where I'm sitting. We run. We run from these circumstances we don't like because we don't want them. It's our very opportunity to share the gospel. What is our circumstance? Pray. What is our need? Pray. Pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks, thanks in all circumstances. Listen. If you don't hear anything else, listen. For this, these circumstances, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You are where you are to proclaim his death. You are where you are to glorify God. That's why you have that circumstance. Philippians 1, listen. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that belief has been granted you. That sovereign God has granted you belief in him. It doesn't stop there. Not only to believe in him, but also To suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Suffer for his sake. Yeah, all these things we're called to suffering. We're called to be content and to suffer. (sighs) Do we run from tough circumstances? Do we pray to get out of them? Sure, we can pray to get out of them. It drives us to prayer, right, to move from that, But those circumstances and those, that suffering is for our benefit. Finally, Romans 5 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace, in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also attained access by faith into his grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. When's the last time you rejoiced in suffering? I can't remember the last time I rejoiced in suffering, guys. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, we prevail. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And has been given to us. We've been given something we should be satisfied with. If we're pursuing fleshly things, our possessions have become something we gotta hold on to, and they rot right in front of us. We spend all of our time and our money, and we do our jobs so we can keep those things, and we don't see them as the blessing they're intended to be, that we can enjoy, that we can enjoy, even if it's just for a few minutes. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul, after being beaten and for publicly speaking about Christ, he's speaking about this whole event, and he says, and left the presence of the council rejoicing that we were counted worthy to suffer. The Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if the children are heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Oneness. 1 Corinthians twelve twenty six says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. 2 Corinthians, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. We suffer together. 2 Timothy, for this reason, I remind you to fan in the flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed. For I know the whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. It's a finished work. I think too often we, we say, yeah, even if we get to this point, I can trust Christ with salvation. I'll give that to him, but I'm going to work the rest of it out myself. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. As we take the supper this morning, I pray that your hunger is for righteousness, the righteousness of God, namely Jesus Christ. That's your passion, that's your pursuit. That your thirst is for righteousness, namely Christ. Let's take the supper.
0: Amen. Y'all be seated for just a second. There's a lot of kids in here, and y'all all did really, really well today. Kids, it's, this stuff is very, very important, and y'all listened well, or at least you were quiet. And uh, um, parents, as you've wrestled and done headlocks and other various maneuvers this morning, it's worth it. Y'all have done well as, as well. So, um, uh, I mentioned at the end of the sermon, but I, I can't preach about prayer to the point that you experience anything really you need to go pray and so kids remind your families before the end of the day that y'all need to pray as a family some of my best reminders come from my daughters we need to do our votions is what they say oh yeah we probably do that's a good idea um, so kids remind your families of that um, y'all stand and we're going to close in prayer and I'm going to read from Habakkuk um, at the very end of that chapter and then we'll, we'll be dismissed We are thankful for our time this morning. I'm thankful for a word that you have breathed out that is profitable, that we might be trained by it to go and walk in the truth. Lord, many different people are in many different places, even here this morning. They have different things to anticipate this week, whether in work or family, finances, whatever it might be. But I pray, Lord, that you would Keep us most of all in eager anticipation of the return of our Lord. Thank you for the reminder that the end of all things is at hand. I pray that it would affect our prayers appropriately this week. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all are dismissed.